Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach. Bookends is designed so you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that can transform, and today we will visit with Kathy Caprino, who has written Breakdown, Breakthrough, The Professional Woman's Guide to Claiming a Life of Passion, Power, and Purpose. You can access today's recording and all of our previous Bookends programs at bookendsbookclub.net. Following our interview today, you are also invited to log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. In this LinkedIn group, you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our Bookends featured authors who are members of this group. Invite your friends and jo to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and I'd like to introduce Kathy Caprino, who is a nationally recognized women's career and executive coach, speaker, and author of Breakdown, Breakthrough, The Professional Women's Guide to Claiming a Life of Passion, Power, and Purpose founder and president of Ilya Communications Incorporated, a career and work-life coaching company dedicated to helping women achieve breakthrough to create, live, and work as they truly want it. Caprino is a trained psychotherapist, marketing consultant, seasoned career coach, and sought-after writer and speaker on women's career issues. She is a popular blogger and writer on women's career topics and trends. And as a top media source, she has appeared in more than 100 leading newspapers and magazines and on national radio and television. Her current national research study focuses on women succeeding abundantly and explores the key actions, beliefs, and choices made by women of all ages who are achieving tremendous success and fulfilling and fulfillment in their lives and careers, thriving and living joyfully on their own terms. Kathy is a vibrant, engaging speaker who delivers interactive seminars and talks for corporations and women's organizations at the local, regional, and national levels. Additional information about her coaching and speaking services can be found at iliacommunications.com. To get a copy of her book or for more information, visit breakdownbreakthrough.com. A chapter from Kathy's book and other related resources will also be available after this interview at bookendsbookclub.net in the resource section of the site. Kathy Caprino, welcome to Bookends. Oh, thank you, Susan. So happy to be here. Well, it's wonderful to uh, have an opportunity to work with you today. Um, after reading your book, which is actually the first book that I've had an opportunity to feature on the show that is exclusively written for women. So wow. I really enjoyed uh, the time that I spent with your book and, and certainly the stories in there. And, Kathy, you, you, um, you write about some of the personal life challenges that you encountered in the book's preface and um, the, how these eventually led you to the work that you do today and certainly to the book. Could you share a little bit of your story with us? I would love to. Thank you. Yeah. So basically here it is in a nutshell. I had an 18-year corporate career in publishing and marketing, market research and membership services. And, uh, you know, on the outside it was very, very successful, you know, raises and promotions and managing large global initiatives and staff and $30 million budgets. But on the inside, 
it was not successful. I was, as I know now, breaking down all along the way. And, you know, in the beginning I did somewhat like it, I have to say, but then as time went on I, I wasn't connected with my work. It didn't light me up. It didn't give me meaning, right? So as I approached 40, I'm 50 now, actually, 50 this June, uh, I, I started having, you know, these bumps in my career became full-blown crises. The first was I had uh, chronic illness, something called tracheitis, which affect me an infection in my trachea. And I had it for four years. Every three years I'd get, every three months I'd get a terrible infection, fever, chills, couldn't move, horrible. And despite a lot of visiting doctors, I couldn't get help for it. Nothing really moved it. On top of that, I faced harassment, discrimination, you know, everything you read about, really, kind of it all just came crushing down. But even more painful than that, truthfully, was the feeling of waking up every morning um, really not liking, really feeling like the work you do is meaningless. And, and I know I'm meant for something else, but what? So I tried to get help, truthfully. I saw a therapist. I saw a career counselor. I found a mentor. But none of it moved me forward, which is definitely why I have become a career coach with a different approach. But none of it moved me forward. The reason for that, briefly, is that I really needed a paradigm shift. I needed someone to help me. You know, Einstein says you can't solve a problem on the level that was created. I needed a new level of thinking and didn't get it. So I didn't take action. I didn't change my life. I didn't change my career. And as will happen when we don't move forward, the universe will step in. And so one month after moving to a, a larger home, more financial responsibilities, um, you know, more burdens, I was laid off in a real brutal way. And I said to myself at that moment, and I should share this, I have a wonderful husband. He was a jazz percussionist. But um, financial stability doesn't tend to come with the music industry. So I uh-huh. saw myself as the money bags, the one who has to bring the money in the 401K and the benefits home, and that's what really kept me very stuck. So um, after being laid off brutally, I really had a wake-up call. I was in my therapist's office, and he said, crying, and he said, I know this is the worst crisis you feel you've ever faced, but from where I sit, this is the first moment that you can choose who you want to be. Who do you want to be? And I said, I want to be like you. And he said, what does that mean? And I said, help people, not hurt people and be hurt. And from that discussion, I became a marriage and family therapist, got a master's, became a trained coach. But the interesting story is I started giving talks to women, working women about thriving through change. And I noticed that 9 out of 10 um, uh, women that I spoke with in these audiences were as miserable as I had been. And I said, this is an epidemic. Something is happening, and we ha- I have to be part of the solution. So I launched a national research study with over 100 women about what is professional crises for women, how do we get it, how do we get out of it, Why? how are we different from men, and what does that mean? And the results were, to me, so astounding and so amazing that my book emerged from that, and I became a career coach for women. And, in fact, I've just launched a, a marketing uh, consultancy for women writers and consultants and business women who want to take themselves to the next level. And now I really know what it means to wake up loving what you do. It doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean, you know, we don't struggle with stretching to be all we can be. But um, it's been an amazing journey, journey and I'm so thankful I, I went on it. Well, 
It's amazing how, you know, so often when people hit the wall, as you really described in your personal story, how sometimes that's the very opportunity for us to make really big changes in our lives and, and, and set things straight. That's it. And, you know, many, many, many of us wait until that, that wake-up call comes. I, I try to have people not wait that long because usually <laughs> there's great distress and, and stress and disturbance in our lives when we've waited that long to the breakdown moment. But that's when most people, if they can embrace it, you know, really will make life change that's meaningful. Yeah. Well, on page seven of your book, you write, and i like to quote you here, it says, uh, what I call breakdown is occurring with greater frequency and impact than ever before to professional women in the United States, end quote. And I, I, I'm really curious, you know, why is this? And, and what's going on today for women that's different or new? And, and what still lingers that maybe has been ongoing for women, but maybe it's taken on some new form um, in these times. What a wonderful question. I think that it's a confluence of factors, and um, we're going to discuss all of them, but it all comes together to create this special problem. You know, so many women have come before us to forge a path for us to do what we want to in, in corporate America and as contributing professionals. The problem today, I feel, is this, and, you know, it's slightly controversial. When I say it to audiences, you know, at first there's kind of a doe in the headlight, deer in the headlight, and then there's release and laughter and crying. But the first piece is I think that what exists today in corporate America is a white male competitive career model. I don't mean to bash men. It's not about men are being the enemy. It's that the model that was created has assumptions that come from a white male competitive perspective. And just very briefly, and it's all in the book, and anyone can reach out if they have questions about this, these four assumptions are this, that to be a professional um, who's highly successful, first of all, your career has to be linear. You go in at 22 and you go, 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 go until you retire. There's no off-ramping. There's no on-ramping. You go and go, and there's a long arc to it. Number two, it's about face time and full time. It's not about m- moving in a fluid way, you know, prioritizing your children and caregiving so that you have to back off of work and then coming back in. It's about face time and full time at full throttle, right? The third assumption is that when we're in our 30s and 40s, we will be displaying the most intensive commitment. Well, what are many women doing in their 30s and 40s? Having babies. So, you know, this just doesn't work. And the fourth assumption is that money and power are the primary motivators to success and to contribution. And, you know, the research has shown over and over, yes, women, of course, need to be uh, treated and paid fairly and equitably, but it's not money and power that is the primary motivator. It's contribution, it's meaning, it's value, it's collaboration, it's making a difference. So these four assumptions that we operate in really crush women down. And often women who, and I was one of them, who did what it took to succeed in this model, wake up in midlife and say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. I don't care to do it. And it's not generating, you know, a positive influence in my life any longer. So that's number one. Number two, the research shows that women are still doing the vast majority of domestic responsibility at work, uh, at home, even when they work and even when they're the primary breadwinners. So really we're living double lives. 
And how many of us can keep doing that without getting sick, right? And the women I work with, high-level women, entrepreneurs, they all say one of the deepest challenges is doing what they want to do as a mother and and balancing that with being a contributive professional. It's so challenging. And we haven't figured it out yet. The third is that women are not men in skirts. We're very different. Not all. I'm making very gross generalizations here. Of course, there are exceptions. But in general, we have different approaches, different styles, different priorities, different needs. But in a way, we're still underground about that. And the fourth piece is, you know, I believe that every generation or period of history has a theme. And I think right now for midlife women, a generational theme is I want meaning. I want this life to count. And, you know, when you wake up and realize, I really don't like my work. It's not who I am. I'm embarrassed by it. I don't like who I've become. All of a sudden, you know, the meaning that you're longing for um, requires change. So those are the four things that I think are really coming together to make crisis um, more frequent for women. I find it particularly interesting, um, you know, that for many women, you know, they, they wish for something and they get it and they reach that point that's supposedly a success, you know, at least it's the monetary success, and and that's when they begin to recognize how really empty they, they truly are at that point, and yes, that there's so much more that needs to happen, and certainly that's the story of your book and, and what your book is really about. I, I, w- I loved when you talked in your book about midlife crisis, and you say, that midlife crisis for women is not a myth. <laughs> I just had to chuckle when I read that. <laughs> of course, you know, we've all heard about male midlife life crisis, and oftentimes we discuss it in a, you know, kind of a humorous way. So have women always had this challenge, and maybe it just didn't get acknowledged? Or do you, do you feel that this idea of women's midlife crisis is something, it's, is it new? Um, and what would it look like? What does a woman's midlife crisis look like? Oh, what a wonderful question. You know, I'm not a historian of women to know. Of course there have been crises in everyone's lives for years, different ones. You know, in history when we were only living to 40, we're not having midlife crises, right? We're surviving. And I can even look at my own parents who are 90 and uh, 84. Their generational theme, living through the Depression and war, was about survival, So um, I do think that midlife crises, as we know them today, the awakening of I don't like where I've taken my life. It fit me when I was 20. It fit pretty well when I was 30. Now it doesn't fit. It is unique now, again, because of that generational theme of I want this life to count and I want to self-actualize. I want to kind of become all I can be. I, I just don't think that was a theme in previous generations. It was more about hacking it through the wilderness. Even for women, you know, trying to break into the workforce, it was about surviving and coping, right, and making progress. So I do think it's, it's you know, special today. Um, now, I think your question was, what does it look like for women? Is that what you asked? Yes. Mm-hmm. It really um, it takes a different shape for every individual, but in almost every case, there's some piece of an emotional, behavioral, or spiritual malaise. There can be depression. There can be anger. There can be, I mean, some women, there's a wonderful book actually by Sue Schellenbarger about midlife crisis. Um, I'll have to think of the title, and she talks about the different ways. Some women 
really rebel and run away from the, the suburban life that they've created to become adventurers. Everybody does it differently. But I know a crisis is occurring when there's a, a, a deep awakening that I don't want to live like this one more minute, and I'm ready to do what it takes. That's what it looks like to me. That's a great description. In, in Chapter 2, um, you, you actually titled the chapter, and I was intrigued by this. It's called Recognizing When You Are in Professional Crisis. And I have to admit that as I first you know, read that, I kind of chuckled and thought, well, you know, that would be kind of obvious. But then as I started to read into the chapter, you talked about what you framed as the depth of denial that you've encountered when you've been out in the field working with women. And as I read those words, um, I, I started to think about myself, and I certainly had to admit um, that there had been a point in my life when I caught myself in the depths of denial. I wondered if you might share a story with us that illustrates you know, maybe an extreme example of denial that you've encountered. Your book is full of tremendous yeah. stories and, and uh, that, you know, really brings the ideas that you write about alive. Do you have a story about denial that, that would show how powerful this can um, express itself in the lives of women? Yeah, and I'll use myself as this example, but then we'll talk about, you know, as, as we continue to talk, the other wonderful stories of, of women who've made uh, change and transformation. But, you know, I really am a walking example in that I've had all 12 of the hidden crises that working women face today that I talk about in my book. I had all 12 of them. And, uh, you know, so what's an extreme example? When you can't speak up for yourself, when you know your, the way your life is is going down the path, it's careening out of your control, when your relationships are strained to the point of, you know, really having a problem, when you can't be who you want to be to your children, when all of that is coming together, and often, you you asked me this earlier, Susan, often your body will express it when your lips do not. Often when you get to this point of extreme denial, when you're not, and, and I have to say this, why do we wait? Why do we have this denial? Because we've worked so hard. We want to have what what we've created we want it to work. We don't want to wake up and say, are you kidding me? For 20 years I worked this hard only to have this professional identity that I don't like. You know, it's, it's, it's a coping mechanism that we think if I just did something different, worked a little harder, and this is another issue for women, we make ourselves wrong. This is part of the denial. You hate your job. You're not wrong to hate it. But we make ourselves wrong. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. If I were a better salesperson, if I were just worked a little, you know, three more hours a day, we make ourselves wrong. That's part of the denial. And so we wait until something tremendously drastic, and it's often health when uh, we simply are forced to do something very different because our bodies have broken down. And, of course, that was me with tracheitis. I, I really couldn't. I couldn't function with how ill I had become. Uh, so there it is, just just not looking at the signs. I just blogged yesterday about the seven signs we're in money denial and what to do about it. I mean, women come to me, and they're small business owners or entrepreneurs, and, and they've, the signs are so there that they their business is failing. But they just don't want to see it because... A lot of people have a spiritual view, build it and they will come. I really believe this. It's not necessarily true that they will come. 
it's not necessarily true that do what you love and the money will follow. No, you have to take empowered, strong action right. that moves you forward. So those are the reasons. We just we want what we have to work, and we're very afraid of stepping out of our comfort zone, and therefore we wait until it's almost you know the last possible second to make change. Yeah, and how unfortunate for all of us that we do that. Your, your book is, is organized into four broad levels of empowerment, and we'll get to those in, in just a little bit. But to help women determine if they need to change their lives, you turn these areas around to see what might be happening if someone were disempowered at each of these levels. Could you walk us through each of these four levels and, and share the corresponding? Just a moment ago, you mentioned that there are 12 of these crises, and they actually correlate to the, to the four levels. Um, could you could you talk about that a little bit because that really provides kind of a framework for the rest of the book. Right, wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so when I when I was speaking to these hundreds of women, I noticed that there were re- recurring themes, and you know, part of my job to make this useful was to break it down in in a model that we could grasp. So it came to me that these four levels were uh, started with how you feel about yourself. Um, this, so when we're broken down, it's disempowerment with self. And the next, and I'll go into those crises, but the next level is disempowerment with others. So you may have self-esteem. You may feel good about yourself, but when you interact and negotiate and work with others, you feel chewed up and spit out, right? The third level is with the world, disempowerment with the world, you may feel good about yourself and others, but in terms of a vehicle for positive change in the world, you feel broken down. You don't know how to do that. And within that is fulfilling your financial needs, so we'll talk about that in a minute. And the fourth level, I call it disempowerment with your higher self. This is not a religious concept. It is a spiritual concept, but it, what it means is when we're connected to our higher self, we have access to wisdom and resources and help and knowledge and love and support that goes beyond our individual ego. We feel very connected to the world and to others, and we get inspiration from kind of a dimension that's higher than us. When we're disempowered with the higher self, we feel we're hacking it out alone, that we're not connected. So here are the crises within those levels. When you're disempowered with self, and I want to say this, the language that I use is about, I can't do this. That's what I hear most often, those words. I just can't do this. I don't have what it takes. So they're phrased in, I can't. So the disempowerment with self, the three crises are, I can't resolve my chronic health problems. I can't overcome this loss. You know, something's been taken away, either a job or a loved one or a relationship or a child moved away. I can't overcome this loss. The third is, I don't like who I've become. I can't stand who I've become in order to survive this life I have. The next level of disempowerment with others is, I can't speak up with power. I can't break this cycle of mistreatment. So when you find yourself over and over, no matter what job you have, no matter what relationship you're being mistreated, we have to look at ourselves. We have to look at how we're co-creating this, and we have to look at our boundaries. That's a huge one. And the third is, I can't get out of this crushing competition. So many women say where they live or, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or at work. Everyone is competing bitterly and fiercely and to the end. 
And when we have this, we have to look at ourselves. Where are we trying to prove ourselves over and over? Disempowerment with the world, the three crises there are, I can't escape my financial traps, I can't use my real talents in life and work, and I can't help others in the world despite my longing to. And finally, disempowerment with your higher self. This one's phrased differently. It's about everything is falling apart all at once. Everything. Everything I care about is falling apart. And the second crisis is I can't balance life and work, and I believe that this one is the most predominant for working women today. I can't balance life and work. And finally, I can't do work and play that I love. So those are the 12. It's an excellent model and and really quite unique. And I did want to mention before we move on that in the self area, one of the the crises that you um, mentioned is uh, I can't stand who I've become. And um, one of the authors that we interviewed on bookends um, a couple of months back was was Elizabeth Doty. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, another uh, Barrett Kohler author who has written a book called The Compromise Trap. Uh, and is really very much about the idea of I can't stand whom, uh, who I've become as it relates to corporate settings and women kind of selling their souls. And <laughs> Wow. That whole thing. have to read so, it right away. Yeah, so if that's um, and anyone listening, if that's a real uh, place that you are and you're looking for an entire book on that topic, I would certainly recommend um, Elizabeth's book and, and the interview on bookends. Back to um, to chapter three in your book, and you have so generously provided a gift to um, anyone who is interested in it, um, and that is that you are providing the entire chapter, uh, chapter three, which which provides your model uh, for empowerment. And um, I want to thank you for that and remind folks that this particular chapter can be found in the resource area of uh, Bookends Book Club, which is bookendsbookclub.net. And um, this is just the the empowerment guide is, is part of this chapter, and it is a tremendously powerful tool. I just wondered if you would um, have any advice or suggestions for people who um, would access this tool, how they might utilize it. Yes, so you're talking about the, the wonderful chart with these crises and, oh, and the yeah. advice, right? Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. You know, numbers numbers of people have told me they've read the book and used it very differently. Some, you know, pick it up and because they know they're, they want change. They, their wake-up call has come. And they read it from beginning to end because the stories inspire them, right? So some people learn through narrative. Others learn through, you know, very specific self-help advice. I would suggest this to get to the real heart of what's going on and what needs to change first. Read that chart and read about these crises, um, and just using your intuition, using your gut, um, which one is calling to you most prominently. And you know what? Start at the level of self if that's where it is, because when we're not healthy, when we're not strong and connected to ourselves, everything else is ten times more challenging. So, for instance, if you are having chronic health problems, that's where you must start. And I would go right to that chapter, read that story, do those exercises, and then see where it takes you. Um, And others have said, I have three crises. In fact, uh, a large number of women have three, on average, three of these crises at the same time. (laughs) So you might want to read the three chapters. But the the goal is to find what you resonate with most strongly, where where the hair on the back of your head 
neck really stands up and it resonates for you, that's where you should start. And, and go to that chapter and do those exercises and see where it takes you. Great. Real quick diagnostic tool to help uh, focus your attention in the book, although I'd recommend that you read the entire book because it's excellent. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, The remainder of of the book starts to take us through each one of the crises um, that you mentioned earlier and illustrates them with a really powerful story. And you kind of walk through the story and stop it at certain points and talk about what's happening um, with the individual, you, your your therapist comes out there, and it's excellent. These are true stories, and they are you know from women that you've personally worked with, and and these women share not only their stories um, but their strategies and their advice um, for how they worked through these challenges. I, I'd like to, to um, in the time that we have remaining, uh, visit just one or two of these stories, um, see what we have time for. But I thought that maybe the place to begin is that since health issues seem to be such you know, an epidemic in the U.S., and particularly for, for women that are on the move and on the rise in organizations, they often you know, get the wake-up call through a health crisis, I think it'd be great to share with listeners the story of Helen. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you talk about Helen a little bit with us and tell her her story and her advice for us? I will indeed. And I can't do do it as eloquently as she does in the book, so please do see the book. But Helen, uh, a bit about Helen. She had started out as um, as a writer and a librarian and loved books and loved working with children. But what happened, as often does, when you become very successful, you're promoted and promoted and promoted, and she was promoted to a top-level administrator in a large city public library system. And what happened was she moved very much away from what she had loved, working with books and children and ideas, into computers and technology and training hundreds of librarians. And, you know, very quickly on, it became so stressful, overwhelming, and so disconnected from what she loved that truly the stress was killing her. But here's how it came out. She's all of a sudden, apparently it felt to her, out of the blue, she started having terrible, terrible dizzy spells, blinding spells that made her very nauseous. She couldn't see. She couldn't function. And, you know, amazingly, she wasn't able to read books. She wasn't able to read anymore the books she so loved. So she went to doctors, as we do, doctor after doctor, and nothing, nothing helped. And at the same time, she was dealing with her mother's decline into dementia and Alzheimer's and and the sudden death of her cousin from cancer. So, you know, often we're hanging on by a thread, and it would continue that way, but when other things happened to, you know, to break us down, it was just all too much. So she did find a wonderful behavioral optometrist who helped her, you know, change kind of what she was doing. But as she started to feel better, she realized, I have to leave this huge job with this wonderful salary. I have to leave it. And she did. And she found a wonderful part-time job at a private school as a librarian. And to this day, I'm in touch with her. She She's there and loves it. Why? Because it's back to what she's passionate about, helping children, books. She loves her colleagues. There's meaning and joy for her there. There's power for her there. And she's healthy now. She, you know, every once in a while might have a, a bit of a dizzy spell, but she realizes then it's stress that's that's contributing, and she makes changes. So she really went from a 
completely dysfunctional situation to doing what it takes to reinvent so that she can be healthy and love what she's doing again. Such a powerful story. And I was particularly struck uh, by the connection that you share in the book, uh, in this particular section of the book, where you talk about the location in our bodies when an illness manifests itself, where it physically uh, manifests itself in our bodies, and how that ties to an emotional issue that the illness is actually representing. I I just found this whole thing to be fascinating. Could you talk a little bit about this and and share some of the um, examples of how these uh, physical locations illustrate particular Um, kinds of illness for us? Yes, I'd love to. I just need to preface this by saying two things. You know, I'm I'm by no means suggesting that we just chuck medical science, right, or that we don't get our traditional medical treatment. We, We need to do what we feel is right for us. So I want people to know that. Number two, I've had training in energy healing work, and that allows me to look at the body and energy a little different from maybe a traditional view. But what my work has taught me, and I've seen it with myself, is that um, certainly illnesses are the body's way of saying things we're not saying with the lips, right? And there are metaphoric meanings, I believe, um, underlying your chronic illness. Now, we all might get an infection or this or that that comes and goes. I'm talking about when it's chronic. I feel it's a screaming of attention for you. So for me, for instance, the throat, Um, why did I, and I had to go to an energy healer. No doctor was helping me with my tracheitis. I went to four different doctors, and then they gave me antibiotics, and then that wreaked havoc with my body, as it will with female bodies. And I just got more sick, and I went to two energy healers, and they both said the same thing, and I didn't want to hear it, but it was, how are you not speaking up for yourself? How are you living in a way that's completely a lie? What are you not saying? So when we have pain in our throat, I think the very first question is, what am I not saying? How, you know, the throat chakra is the seat of your personal expression. So it's how are you not being truthful in life? And I've even had it be where someone comes to me and says, oh, you know, I have such a pain in my neck. I will say, who's being the pain in your neck? And there's always somebody it's something that you're not addressing. It's amazing. It's actually kind of humorous. So if you have a pain in your neck, who is the pain in your neck? Um, issues like overweight, um, you know, where we're eating almost to protect ourselves. I feel that often there's a fear there, a, a fear of that we're kind of hiding from life. And our weight is our protective mechanism, right? Skin problems. I have found this to be amazingly accurate. I view skin as your boundary, your self-protective boundary between you and the world. Many people with chronic skin issues, and I've actually had skin issues, so I know this is true, um, it's an issue of boundaries where you're not developing a strong boundary where you know where you end and the world outside you begins, right? So it really goes on and on from legs to back pain. Um, And the question is, Okay, stepping out of yourself, what could it possibly mean if, um, for instance, if I'm having stomach problems? Well, what's the, what's the metaphoric meaning? I can't stomach what's going on. I can't digest it. Absolutely. Makes sense? Absolutely. It's really, you know, I mean, it just, it really hit me because it, it seems obvious after you read it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, 
you know, your body is really trying to educate you and, and um, you know, call to your attention what's happening. We I need to say there's a wonderful book by Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life. And, in fact, her book was so inspirational, there's a wonderful chart there, a little bit similar to mine, that talks about if this is your ailment, this is the spiritual root. And here's kind of the energy thought form that's blocking you, and here's the new energy thought form, that kind of an affirmation that you can move to. So if you're having chronic ailments, that's a wonderful first place to start. Great advice. Well, I'd like to talk about another one of the crises found in another level of empowerment, and this is the empowerment with the world level. Uh, and um, so many people feel entrapped by their work. Um, in particular, I think women um, feel entrapped very often. Uh, and um, they do a disservice to themselves and their employers when they, they live this way. Um, at least that's my opinion. Um, I really loved the story you shared with us about Monique, who you know finally had the courage to do what she really loved. And I thought she was an excellent role model for us all. Would you tell us a little bit about her? Monique, you're, you're talking about yeah. Monique Marvesi. Yeah, what a story. Her story, <laughs> you know, she's a writer and a comedian, and I, I couldn't even edit out one word, ben, so my editor was not thrilled. But here's her story as well as I can can give it. You know, it starts in childhood, as all of our stories, stories do, and hers was fraught with, she, she uh, indicates, instability and insecurity. So kind of subconsciously she decided it's going to be stability that I have. That's what I'm going for. So she didn't even finish college. She got a job as a sales associate with Estee Lauder. And um, she was immediately great at it because it was connecting with women and helping them and, you know, amazing. And she got married very, very young. She married her high school sweetheart. But then something happened. She trekked along for a number of years at Estee Lauder, thinking, I have a secure, stable life. And then the man that she married, after a year and a half, ran off with another woman. And so here she is, 24 and divorced. And she felt so empty and depressed. And she, it made her, that crisis, kind of realize that security is good, but I'm looking for something deeper, something, uh, you know, a real mission in my life that's going to give me the security and stability I need. So she toyed with various jobs, landed, landed an interesting one where she was an underwriter of medical malpractice insurance policies. It turns out she was great at that, too. <laughs> which is a great tip for, for or a piece of information for women. We can be great at a lot of things. It doesn't mean we should do work at, at them. Just because you're great at it doesn't mean you love it. doesn't mean it's where your power is, right? That's just True. a little aside. So she was great at that, too, making great money, but all of a sudden the, the particular company she was in grew very toxic for her, and they told her she couldn't be friends with someone who had become a competitor. They told her she couldn't associate with this friend. And she said, that's it. And she said, forget it, and was fired. And quickly, she was watching Oprah on TV, and something really snapped. Something really affected her deeply. And she sat there for hours writing her manifesto about the end of slavehood, what she would never, ever, ever do again in the name of work. How brilliant, right? Don't, shouldn't we all write that? I love it. 
I'd like to read that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so then she said she, later she she got a terrible, terrible fever, and she calls this, these fevers the grievals because whenever she has a terrible fever, it's like her body and her mind grieving for something she's about to leave behind. Isn't that amazing, the grievals? Great concept. So she, she was laying in bed with the grievals, the terrible fevers, and sick, and she was reading the paper and saw something about this great comedian, Sam Kinison and a performance he had just played where she was, and he was so successful, something said to her, I want to do that. <laughs> She'd never thought about being a comedian. Her friends had always had said she was hilarious and, and was able to say and articulate things that no one else had the guts to, but never had thought about comedy. She picks up the phone, calls the comedy club. They said, yeah, come on down and try out. <laughs> she did it two days later and was amazing, and they invited her back. But the, the fascinating story is that she went on and dedicated herself to comedy, but it was years of back-breaking work, no money, driving a broken-down car, sleeping in cars, no insurance, no, you know, hard, really hard. And she came to the end. She said, uh, one of her friends said, your life is ridiculous. When are you going to stop this nonsense? And she decided, that's it. i got to give it up. I can't live like this. This is nuts. But wouldn't you know it, that very night she was passing through an area that she'd played before and loved the woman's bar who always hired her to come perform. And she she gave a performance that was so moving. She also has this strong intuitive ability. She can kind of read, psychically read people. And she read someone in the audience that was so rocked by what she said, the whole audience couldn't move. Wow. And she knew this is a God-given talent. I'm not going to quit. And what shifted was she decided no matter how ridiculous it looked to the outside world, she was going to give her whole self to comedy. And she did. And she talks about it so beautifully like comedy is to her like a child is to a mother. It's so beautiful. And she gave it, man. She gave herself to it. And she is incredibly successful. She's writing her own TV pilot. She's been on an HBO showcase. She has an amazing radio show. She's at the top of her field. She's la- uh, she's a Latina, and she was nominated for an Alma Award for her Latin Divas of Comedy special. <laughs> she's made it. But, you know, it's never been easy. And she does say this one thing when people come up to her and say, I'm a comedian, but how long do I give it before I give up? She said, if you can even think about giving up, maybe it's not for you. Yeah. Because it's going to exact a price, you know. Absolutely. I think it's a great tie back to what you said earlier when you were talking about women thinking uh, about their own businesses and they think that if you build it, they will come. Mm. And, um, you know, here is a woman who clearly burned her bridges. Right. um, And she was, you know, going to do this at all costs. She's just such a powerful uh, role model of what you were talking about there. Thank you. I, I also loved um, her phrase. You talk about it in the book. She calls she she describes herself as being angel retentive. I love it. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. She mentioned how she explained it to me was she after she decided I'm going to make this work. I'm going to do whatever it takes. She met a fellow, an attorney, who loved her work and believed in her three thousand percent, and he later became her manager and has been so instrumental in her success. And she views him as an angel on earth. And I really am so right there with her. I believe that there are people that come to us 
facilitators, mentors, supporters, um, service providers who come to us all the time ready and able to help us launch to the next level. And they're truly angels. And I, I call them angels because, and so does she, I feel like you know an angel when they believe in you and see the future vision of you before it's hatched. They know you can do it when your knees are knocking together and you're not sure, right? But to to make use of these angels, we have to act on their help. We've got to move ourselves forward. When they say, yes, you can do it, and I'm going to get you this HBO special, you can't winch and whine and say, I'm not sure I'm good enough. You say, yes, I can do it, right? So you have to believe in yourself powerfully and absolutely without doubt. And once you do, these angels come to us really continually offering just the right level of support and assistance. Such a great story. I just loved it. And I I think we actually have time to visit one more level of empowerment. And I'd really like if we could visit a little bit with with Teresa, who uh, is an illustration in the level of empowerment that's the, you know, with empowerment with the higher self. Um, What an incredible woman and an incredible story. Could you tell us a little bit about her life and how it got her to where she is today? Yes, and I can say this. When people say to me, I don't have what it takes, I say, read this chapter about Teresa. Don't make it, don't say that anymore. But, okay, briefly, Teresa was born to a mother who was imprisoned for being a con artist. And as a baby, she was handed off to her mother's sister. But she suffered abuse there as a baby and a young child. And she was removed from that home by the state. Series of foster homes, you know, terrible situations, finally placed in an, an adoptive home when she was six. Small farm in Kansas. And she had a very modest upbringing. They were very poor. She worked all the time. No TV, no playtime, right? I, I remember she even... I guess it was Thursdays, she, they would go to the back of the grocery store and go through the garbage there, you know, to, that's what they could eat that day. So we're talking so impoverished, right? But the blessing is she had an amazing two role models in women, her adopted mother and grandmother. They were very strong, resourceful, positive. They never complained, right? Well, it turns out her adopted father was terribly abusive to the whole family. He spent time in prison for the the abuse, and after prison, he committed suicide. He set house on the fire and then uh, set the house on fire and then shot himself to death. I mean, we're talking. Can you imagine what that does in terms of setting you up in life, right? So, the amazing thing is, even through that, her mother kept going, tried to be there for her five adopted children, and was always there. You know, I mean, she didn't always succeed beautifully, but she was, she did the best she could. So flash forward here, fast forward, in 1999, Teresa then had a, a deep personal crisis. Out of the blue, her husband of 13 years walked out on them and their two children who were five and seven. It was Valentine's Day. He came in in the morning, gave her candy and kissed her. By nighttime, he had left, left them for, for someone he met on the Internet. So what happened was she was a TV journalist, but her salary wasn't enough to take care of the bills. So she struggled, and it was horrific. She struggled. She was so distraught at the betrayal of her husband. It really took a year for her to kind of come out of it, you know. And um, as, as time went on, she felt a little stronger and a little stronger. And she says that the key symptom for her was that no matter 
how small, every problem that emerged, she just felt like, I can't handle this. This is really falling apart all at once, you know. Everything seemed to be falling apart all at once. But what started to happen was she asked for help. And speaking of angel retentive, people came came to her aid. During her time of crisis, they started sending her cards and letters of encouragement. One woman, she got a phone call, hello, I'm Ruth. I've been instructed to pay your electricity bill. Can you imagine? And one fellow at work, she was about to have to turn in her life insurance policy for the money to get tires for her car. And And the nice colleague said, have you done that yet? And she said, no. He said, don't do that. And he gave her her credit card. And, you know, these blessings of encouragement and support meant the world to her. And she started keeping remembrances of these blessings of help and love and support, the cards, the, the piece of the bald tire that she was able to repair in, in a beautiful basket that she had. And she called it her blessing basket. And as time went on, every night she would look at the blessings in the basket. And it would change her. And she started feeling stronger and got on her feet, and she started giving talks to women about how do we thrive through trauma. And she would talk about her blessing basket, and people would come up, women, and say, I want a blessing basket. I want one of those. So she went out and acquired some baskets from this very neat woman in Arizona who imported them. But underlying it, Teresa wants, she realized, I don't like this. I want to know who the maker of the basket is, and I want to bless the maker of the basket as well as the recipient. And as time went on, she realized, too, that she wanted to make a difference in the world. Her dream was to reduce poverty because she'd been so impoverished herself, right? So she was discussing it with a friend, and the friend said, so what's stopping you? What is stopping you? And, you know, that really catapulted her. She decided from that second on, I'm going to stop making excuses, and I'm going to do something. And she asked this friend to be her coach to help her be accountable and to stop making excuses. And wouldn't you know, she spent from that minute on about eight months go undergoing a whole education process about how do I access these beautiful hand-woven baskets from third-world countries? How do I bless the makers of these baskets? And she, you know, she found a, a site to reach out to different countries, and overnight she heard from 12 different countries. And within two weeks, they had 25 countries who wanted to participate. So, you know, move forward to today, it's the Blessing Basket Project that she founded. It provides sustainable employment and prosperity wages to over 3,000 weavers in six countries. She generates thousands of dollars from the sale of the baskets that she then returns to the communities of the basket makers. And they've, they've you know, generated money for new schools, clean water. It's amazing. She's created a model for reducing world, pro- world poverty by providing providing sustainable jobs that pay prosperity wages. So this is, this is her world now. And the model for doing this, reducing world poverty, has now been replicated, and there's a curriculum at uh, Washington University that, that shows how to do it. So she's, isn't that an amazing story? It truly is. It's so inspirational. And I wondered also if you could share what Teresa's advice to us was. As yeah, she, three things. You must stop making excuses. And, you know, it sounds so simple. All of this sounds very simple, but it's not easy. But it's really, if this is what your heart is calling you to do, you must find a way to do it. And and you just have to rise above your excuses, right? The second piece is you, you must find someone to hold you accountable. And this is just essential. This is why, you know, the most 
wonderfully evolved, powerful people in the world, they have coaches, they have mentors, because we just don't do it ourselves. We can't. We get mired down in, I can't do it, it's too much, it's too overwhelming, where do I begin, right? So get someone to hold you accountable and to, you know, dare to ask the question, what is stopping you, right? And the third is to find a powerful role model. With every client I work with, whether it's a writer or an entrepreneur or a speaker or whatever it is, find a role model, someone who is 10 steps ahead of of you doing what you want to do the way you want to do it. And either learn from them silently, you know, under the radar, or reach out to them and ask them, could I use you as a mentor once a month? Just to pick your brain to understand how you got where you did and how you broke it down. And so find a powerful role model. In Teresa's case, her mothers were, her mother and grandmother were really the role model of do what it takes and, and never let yourself get bogged down by the challenges and the hardship and the, and the adversity. Such a powerful story, and you know, again, your book, of course, is full of powerful stories um, like Teresa's. And uh, I, you know, again, want to encourage people um, who are listening to 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 get a copy of your book and um, and to explore, you know, all of the things that you have in there. I, we didn't mention before, but each of these stories that relate to these twelve crises are followed by. Uh, almost kind of a self-coaching process that you've created, Kathy. And I, your, your approach to empowerment, I think, is, is really unique because it's so specific to women. Mm. And I wondered as we wrapped up our time with you today, if, uh, if you would be willing to tell us just a little bit more for women. You mentioned, you know, that we need mentors, we need, um, you know, people to hold us accountable, and certainly that's something that you offer as well as, you know, other services that you have available. Would you be willing to tell... Um, you know, the folks that are listening, just a little bit more about yourself and, you know, what um, kinds of things that you do in the event that someone would uh, like to tap into your services. Thank you. I'd love to. Um, uh, you know, I, I call myself a breakthrough coach. I am a career and executive coach for women. And I think truly how I, I am different is I really focus on helping women achieve the breakthrough that they need to create life and work as they truly want it. A lot of coaches and consultants talk about tactics. All right, power up your resume and get on LinkedIn and do your social media. My experience is when we have, um, when we experience you know, a breakdown or are not connected to how important we are in the world and what our gifts are, and what our mission is, then there's a bit of a breakdown, and these tactics just won't work. They won't get you where to where you need to go. And because I'm a trained therapist and coach and energy worker and a marketer, I, I do help women release what's holding them back. We get to kind of the heart of it. It's not therapy, but it's looking at what is the, the one area of resistance and blocks. And then we release that and create new strategies for building the professional lives and businesses as they want them. So I'm really excited, too, that I, I just this, this week launched a marketing division called Breakthrough Vision Marketing for women in business, entrepreneurs, consultants, writers, authors, um, private practitioners who want um, coaching and marketing support to really to truthfully make more money doing what you love to do. 
many women suffer from that, as we said, the build it and they will come mentality, and it's just not going to happen unless we really power up with strong marketing tactics and business development tactics that, that allow us to kind of not hide our light under a bushel, right? So I offer the one-on-one coaching, teleseminars, live events, and I'm, I'm embarking on developing a home study program called the Prosperous Marketing Mindset so that women can really shift into what it's going to take to be prosperous doing what I absolutely love. So all of that is at my website, eliacommunications.com. Elia is E-L-L-I-A, communications with an S.com. There it is. Um, I, you know, again, I uh, want to thank you, Kathy, for sharing your wonderful work and your expertise and all of these wonderful stories of, of these women that you've had the opportunity to know and to, and to work with. Um, and once again, to, to get a copy of the book, we've talked about your personal business website, but to get a copy of Breakdown Breakthrough, you can visit BreakdownBreakthrough.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a reminder that if you're interested in the free chapter that Kathy is um, providing for us and other resources as well, you can visit the resource area of the Bookends website, and that's located at bookendsbookclub.net. Following our interview today, you are invited to join this conversation on transformation by joining the group on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion. You can pose questions here for Kathy, who will join us in this discussion group, along with your colleagues and peers. You'll also find a link to the recording of our interview today, and you can share this with others, and you can re-listen yourself. Please be sure to invite your friends to join this group with you. So uh, once again, Kathy um, Caprino, I want to thank you for your time and your talent and your energy and your stories today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Susan. I so appreciate being with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.